Thank you, Mike and Tanya, for that ministry of music. Thank you for coming out tonight and being a part of our evening service. We are drawing close to the end of the book of Malachi, and uh, we are approaching the very end, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, that reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So I'm going to look at those two verses actually next week. And tonight I'm going to uh, introduce some ideas about interpreting script uh, prophecy before we look at those two verses. And then after that we're going to be moving to the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll be in that for a period of time as I uh, take that book chapter by chapter. But uh, tonight, we begin by talking about some uh, considerations of interpreting prophetic portions of Scripture. First, the prophetic portions of Scripture are by far the most difficult portions of Scripture to interpret. I don't think that's shocking or new to anyone sitting here tonight. A, therefore, we should exercise great caution when examining those portions of Scripture. And that caution should manifest itself in a number of ways. First, we should hold our prophetic views with a great degree of humility. Uh, it's easy to be wrong in interpreting prophetic portions of Scripture, and it takes a tremendous amount of wisdom and uh, background in order to tackle many of the issues that are associated with the prophetic portions of Scripture. And I say that because so often uh, new converts uh, love to study like the book of Revelation or some of these things. They, they want to uh, understand all that's in it and um, it's, just, it's just difficult. And it's easy, as I say, to uh, misinterpret and it's one of the reasons why the cults so often uh, spend a lot of their Bible study time in prophetic portions of Scripture because it's the easiest way to mislead people. It's the easiest way to deceive uh, people about what the Word of God teaches in general. So number two, we should make distinctions between that which is clearly revealed and that which is less clearly revealed. Uh, I hope that we understand that when we hold our convictions about the Word of God, we should hold them with varying degrees of certainty. There are things that we know for absolute truth. The Trinity. Uh, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That salvation is by grace through faith. There are certain truths, the virgin birth, uh, that we hold with absolute certainty. There are other doctrines that we hold with less certainty. Uh, for they are built upon uh, 
putting together various portions of scripture and depending how you assimilate those portions of scripture, uh, you can come out with different conclusions. So we ought to be able in our mind to ascertain uh, how certain we are. Uh, we ought to be able to say, I know this with absolute certainty. Uh, this seems like it's a likable way to understand this portion of scripture. Some things we say, well, this is what I think, but I could easily be wrong. Uh, so we need to hold these beliefs with varying degrees of certainty. For example, number three, we know with great certainty that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. We know with less certainty what events are going to accompany his return. And we know with still less certainty when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. In fact, we have no certainty at all about when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. Uh, he tells us that no man knows the hour. Uh, <clears throat> we need to take that at face value. No one knows when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And unfortunately, Christian bookstores are filled with books that tell you when he's going to return. Um, I remember when it was the craze that the Lord was going to return in, what was it, 1994? Uh, was the, the, the huge book that was out. And I remember I, I was at Pinebrook, and uh, someone came up to me from another church, it wasn't one of our own people, came up to me and said, Pastor Reed, have you read this book? And I said, no, I haven't. And they said, uh, why, why haven't you? I said, because it's garbage. And looked at me and said, how can you say that without even reading the book? I said, it's simple, because the Bible says no man knows when he's going to return. Somebody that tells me he's going to return in 1994 is all wet. They just don't know. And I'm not going to spend my time to prove that this person doesn't know what they're, they're talking about. I know from the scriptures that this person can't know that. And sure enough, 1994 came and went, and uh, the Lord did not return. So we, we need to have a degree of humility. And number six, we should focus our attention on that which is clearly revealed. Um, we ought to milk that for all it's worth. That's going to be my approach when we study the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, by title, is it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that genitive of Christ, I believe, is to be understood two ways. First of all, it comes from Christ. And secondly, it's about Christ. And the revelation is about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. And so when we study the book of Revelation, we're going to be focusing on the person of Christ and what is revealed in the revelation about Jesus Christ. B, we must keep in mind the progressive nature of revelation. God reveals to us more and more concerning future events as we work through the Bible. Uh, number two, the first coming of Christ sheds tremendous light on many of the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, so we can understand the Old Testament scriptures uh, much easier on this side of the cross than those that lived on the other side of the cross. Uh, for Old Testament saints, to understand many of the prophetic portions of scripture were quite difficult. Uh, we can look back in hindsight and look at these portions of scripture and understand them much more clearly than what they could. C, we must understand the mountain peaks view of scripture. To understand the mountain peaks of scripture, we must compare scripture with scripture. Two, mountain peaks refers to the phenomenon 
that two mountain peaks may appear to be in close proximity when in fact there is a valley of great distance between them. Uh, I'm thinking if you look at uh, mountain peaks head on, this is not original with me, this is common terminology uh, when you're talking about prophetic portions of scripture. If you look at two mountain peaks, they look like they just flow into each other. But if you turn them on the side, all of a sudden you realize there's a tremendous valley that is uh, between them. Uh, So too it is in prophetic portion of scripture where two events can appear to be closely connected when in fact there's a great distance of time between them. Um, And the only way you know that is by uh, comparing various portions of scripture. So number four, prophetic portions often, uh, prophetic accounts often leave out some details in order to stress one basic point. For example, in the book of Second Peter, a number of prophetic events are referred to in a way that would make them seem as one event. Second Peter 3.10, if you just read it as it's recorded, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away like a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But in actuality, those are all separated events. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's one event. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's the second event. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's a third event. But the point that the passage is making is that after the Lord returns, all these things will ultimately be destroyed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Therefore, we should not long after the things of this world, but after the things of the world to come. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God. D, the purpose in Second Peter is not to provide us with a detailed presentation concerning all the events associated with the Lord's return. That's, that's not what it's about. It's not to explain everything that's going to happen when Jesus returns. It's just simply saying when the Lord returns, dot, 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 ellipsis, eventually everything's going to be destroyed. And so this life is short and brief and you ought to be preparing for eternity. That's the point. But if you read other portions of scripture, you find out that after the Lord returns, (laughs) there's a thousand year period, for example, of the millennium, where Christ reigns on this earth, of which this passage says nothing. But Revelation chapter 20 says a great deal about that particular portion of time. So you need to put together uh, all of the portions of scripture uh, to get a full orb view of prophecy, and you don't get the full orb view in any one portion of scripture. You have to synthesize them. And that's why there's a level of uncertainty. Because as you synthesize these portions of scripture, you've got to do it in such a way that that you're not forcing puzzle pieces. You know, uh, I think everybody's put puzzles together. And if if you're, you're not at all like me. I don't have patience for those kinds of things. 
that to me is hideous, okay? Uh, it, it, it takes a great deal of, people, you know, my family will say, let's sit down and do a puzzle. Oh, all right, uh, all right, we'll, we'll do a puzzle. And, you know, five minutes later, aren't we done with this puzzle yet? And uh, no, we're not. Well, I'm the kind of person that wants to just get this puzzle done and, you know, this is close and I can make it fit. Well, uh, a lot of people do that with the scriptures. Uh, oh, we can make this fit uh, in here somehow and uh, we can reconcile this whole thing. Well, a lot of times it doesn't fit as nice and neatly as we think. And so we have to be careful as we synthesize the scripture. Five, an aside. We also find this same phenomenon in the genealogies of the Bible. Uh, an aside regarding son of. Um, <clears throat> when we read the geology, genealogies and it says so on is the son of so on, who's the son of so on, son of so on, when we read the word son, we think of immediate descendant. Uh, I don't have any sons. I have sons-in-law. Uh, so my son-in-law would be David Brandt. My grandson would be Caleb. Okay, uh, But in the scripture, son simply means descendant. It doesn't mean immediate descendant. It just means uh, progeny. It means offspring. And it could refer to a grandson. It could refer to a great-great-grandson. It could refer to someone six generations away. So son of doesn't literally mean an immediate descendant, also, although in some cases it is an immediate descendant. A, the purpose of the genealogies is to trace one person or one group of people as a descendant from another specific per person. The genealogies are not given to provide us with a detailed family tree. So the, the genealogies are given to us so that we can make connections. We can see relationships that exist. This person is related to this person, who's related to that person, who's related to that person. So it teaches us, in general, family trees. But it doesn't give us every descendant. <clears throat> and some people have made huge mistakes because they fail to realize that. And one of the most famous is a man by the name of William Usher, who spent much of his life tracing out the genealogies, figuring out how long people lived, and with that came up with a date for the earth of being 6,000 years ago based on the genealogies. Well, he, his assumption was that there are no time lapses in these genealogies. His assumption was that they mark out every single generation from the time of Adam, but they don't. So you can't figure out how old the earth is by putting together all the genealogies. It's just one of those um, unfortunate uh, hermeneutical fallacies. Uh, it's, it creates it's, it's a distortion. So again, we just have to be careful as we approach these things. Number two, Jesus provides us with an important insight regarding the different purposes of his first coming and his second coming. A, Jesus did not come into the, the first time to judge the world. 
John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Or as the NASB translates it, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. Uh, that was not the purpose for Christ's first coming. He did not come as a judge. He came as a savior. You've heard me say it time and time again that Jesus did not bring about any judgment in his first coming. No one died under Christ's judgment in his first coming. He did not uh, hold people accountable for their sin. However, at the second coming, he will come as a judge. Uh, so the fact that he did not judge anyone at his first coming does not negate the fact that he will judge people at his second coming. That's the purpose of the second coming, to bring judgment and transformation to this earth. So we need to make a distinction between the events of the first coming and the events of the second coming. Having said this, here's an example. Jesus provides us with an example of interpreting a prophetic passage when two separate events appear to occur at the same time. The occasion is Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke 4:16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Jesus stood, indicating that he wanted to read scripture and to teach. So he stood up to read. Jesus read a portion of scripture from Isaiah, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. D, Jesus read a specific passage from the book of Isaiah of his own choosing. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So you see, Jesus, with a great deal of intentionality, uh, is going to share the word of God with those individuals that were gathered uh, in the synagogue at Nazareth says that he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, he unfurled it, and he looked for a specific portion of scripture to read. The passage that Jesus read was the following. Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus ended his reading, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the people were fixed on him. G. Jesus taught the prophetic portion of Scripture that he read was fulfilled. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. H, what is interesting for our consideration this evening is not only what Jesus read, but also where Jesus stopped reading. He read from Isaiah chapter 60, ver 61 verse one and verse two. But Jesus read only the section that I italicized. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped, closed the scroll, and said, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. What he did not read is, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus did not read, as I just said, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who are mourned. It appears that the words and the day of vengeance of our God were not yet fulfilled. They would be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. All right? So there is a reason that Jesus stopped where he stopped. He said, today this has been fulfilled. This is what I have come to do. Now here's this second portion. And he doesn't read that because that isn't fulfilled today. That's going to be fulfilled in the future. Ah, what is interesting for our consideration this evening is that if one were only reading the book of Isaiah, one most likely would not be able to make that distinction. All right? If you were just reading the book of Isaiah with no knowledge of the cross, no knowledge of the book of Revelation, no knowledge of what Jesus did on this particular occasion, and you were just reading the book of Isaiah, I would submit to you there's no way that you would put a time difference between those two sections. They just seem to flow. Follow my drift? And it's one reason why the rabbis got so much wrong when it came to the Lord's coming and rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They had worked out a prophetic scheme that Jesus was not doing what they anticipated Jesus to do uh, when he came. And so they got it wrong. And I submit to you that there's a lot of portions of Scripture that we get wrong because it seems to make sense to us, but... There very well may be time gaps. There may very well be other things that are going on. Other portions of Scripture help us with that. But even then, there may be things in which we just simply uh, don't get it right. So, Jay, that is one reason why there are so many misconceptions that the religious leaders had concerning the Messiah. Number four, we have a similar issue of seeking to distinguish the events surrounding the first and second coming of the Messiah in Malachi 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evil do do doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, and the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, or there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded you at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and make the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
What I'm going to deal with next week, I know I've got 20 minutes, but I'm going to be able to make this 40 minutes, uh, is I'm going to deal with the whole issue of the disciples saying to Jesus, uh, doesn't Elijah have to come before the Messiah comes? And he says, if you will accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah. They asked him, are you Elijah? He said, no. So how do you reconcile those ideas? Uh, What does that mean, that Elijah must come? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. I'm going to spend 40 minutes on dealing with what the scripture teaches us just about that one specific issue, and that's going to bring us to a close on the book of Malachi as we look at this prophetic portion of scripture, and then we're moving to the book of Revelation. I've got 18 minutes. Uh, I was asked last time by someone who now is not here, that's always the way, they said it would be nice if you would allow some time for question at the end. I will allow for questions tonight uh, if you have any. Good. All right. Uh, makes life easy. All right. So uh, next week we'll, we'll look at this portion of Scripture in Malachi. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we are grateful. And uh, Lord, uh, we, we are thankful for what the reformers referred to as the perpiscuity of the Scriptures. Uh, Lord, we, we are thankful that the Scriptures are clear and understandable. And having said that, O oh God, there is much that is beyond us. Uh, There is much that um, we struggle in in understanding and knowing. Uh, Lord, give us humility to accept uh, the difficulty that we have in understanding these things uh, down to their utmost detail. And uh, Lord, give us uh, the wisdom to acknowledge where our understanding ends. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray that uh, we would not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Help us as we enter into these studies, especially in the book of Revelation, to see what is clearly revealed, and, uh, Lord, to take that to heart, and to be encouraged by it, to be strengthened by it, to be reproved by it, uh, to, Lord, be equipped and ready uh, for um, all that is going to come uh, in association with the Lord's return. Uh, So, Lord, may our study be profitable, and I pray that it would be bringing glory to you, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.